0: Welcome to the Basic Income Podcast, I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So we've looked at basic income from a number of perspectives on this podcast, but one we haven't actually delved into as much is the business perspective.
1: Yeah, there's some interesting ways to look at basic income that that doesn't necessarily come up if, if you're focusing on it solely from more of a moral or pragmatic social program perspective. And so, to delve a bit more into this, I sat down with Floyd Marinescu. He is the founder and CEO of C4 Media and has been quite a longtime advocate for basic income, specifically from that
0: business perspective. So, here is Jim's conversation with Floyd Marinescu on the Basic Income Podcast. Well, Floyd, thanks for joining me on the program.
2: Thank you.
1: So, to begin, can you just tell me, how did you first get interested in basic income?
2: Yeah, honestly, I can't remember what the first uh, first trigger was, but I just know that when I first heard about it, I heard that there's a way that you can solve poverty and also grow the economy. Like, this is great. And I particularly became interested in it because being involved a lot in software development, I can see what's coming down the line with artificial intelligence and machine learning, but also have a, a personal story uh, along about globalization with um, my father and uncle. They lost their jobs. In manufacturing in Ontario, where Toronto is, where when China entered the uh, the global trade market in the 2000s, and they, they could never have seen that coming. They had no idea. Like, like I remember one time, I was at a barbecue with them when I was 17, wondering what I should do with my career. And they're like, "You should go into tool and die manufacturing because we'll always need more metal parts." <laughs> and I chose computer science, but you know, a few years like five years later, both of them were out of work because the industry contracted significantly. And um, I think. I became really worried because I see the same dynamic playing out now, both in terms of globalization and automation, and um, and that's what really got me kind of more urgently interested in basic income.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like typically when, when you talk about any sort of social program, advocates tend to have a personal story that reflects, oh, I, I had this particular challenge growing up. We, we didn't have enough money for food. We were dealing with some sort of housing crisis, and that's a motivator here. But it's it's interesting. It seems like in the basic income space, you actually have people who are engaged in some of this technology work, and that's that that is really the personal story. It's seeing how either themselves or or someone they they know well that the changing nature of work has, has already affected them.
2: Well, there is that personal story for me as well. Um, we grew up pretty poor and working class, and money was always a sense of was always a source of tension. Sometimes even toxicity and arguments. And um, yeah, I I wish there was a basic income so that there'd have been more equality in my family and that would have been less tension. And um, like I, I personally can feel the fact that it seems like the economy is sliding in the wrong direction for more than half of the population, and they're gonna their children will be going through what I went through. So that's definitely sort of at an energy level something that that drives me in this um, for sure.
1: Yeah. So you're you're getting both perspectives there, really. So I, I'm curious, and again, on on a similar note, what when most people advocate for basic income, generally they're, they're either talking about, oh, we need to like, look at this from like, a social perspective, like lifting people up, or, or perhaps a more pragmatic humanitarian perspective, that this is a more efficient way of, of supporting people. But your argument is really on the business side. You see this as something that is actually going to help businesses. So what are your main arguments on that?
2: Well, there are arguments that are timeless, and I'll go over those, and then there are arguments as to why it's urgent. And um, maybe, maybe the urgent ones first, But although I'm sure your audience has already heard this before. I actually think that we're in the middle of a multi-decade labor market correction. And I use that term metaphorically, but I think it probably applies, a market correction that's keeping, keeping wages, depressing wages effectively, and reducing the number of middle-class jobs available to everyone in Western countries. Um, I call it a correction because if you look at those graphs of, of money going to wages versus productivity, and, and you've seen how since the late 1970s, they used to go hand in hand together. So people were, making, were getting raises every year as productivity was increasing, then it stopped. And now for 40 years, majority of working people haven't actually had a raise in inflation adjusted terms, and many are actually making less than they used to make. So to me, that, that's a market correction, and the cause of that market correction is automation, probably primarily. Um, we already have 40 years of automation that people don't think about. We're, there's a lot of hype about AI and artificial intelligence taking out jobs, but the automation we already have, you know, all the industrial robots that we already have, the software gains we already have. You know, I was talking to the general manager of the Merit Marquis in New York Times Square, where we host a, a major event every year, and he told me that that hotel used to have 2,500 people uh, running it in the 80s and now it needs only 1500 and that's a hotel it's like a fixed asset right not many moving parts and you know my father told me that you know, all the a lot of the manufacturing companies in Ontario that survived the competition with China only survived because they automated and if you go visit those plants now you see industrial robots everywhere and far fewer people so the problem is that the globalization of today is not my father's globalization like no manufacturers are still losing their jobs to China to my knowledge today's globalization is about is about entry level, even clerical work. I, I know 15 entrepreneurs that have virtual assistants in the Philippines because they cost $3 an hour. You know, those are jobs that are not being hired in their own hometown. Um, any graphics artist these days has to compete with people on Upwork from from Eastern Europe and, and South America. So today's young people are on a far, far more unfair advantage than our, than our parents were. And no one's talking about this. Like this is, this is really serious. I kind of mixed the automation and globalization messages there. But these two are the number one trends, I think, that for 40 years, we can already see the, the impact it's had on the economy with, with you know, pretty much the lower 60% of society falling into uh, a more precarious check-by-check existence, where even Ray Dalio, the billionaire hedge fund manager from Bridgewater Associates, released a report saying that from now on, we, should, we need to consider that there are actually two economies here. There's the economy of the bottom 60% and the economy of the top 40%. Which has done much better, and the people in the 60 bottom 60% economy have twice the suicide rate. Um, don't can't find $500 in case of an emergency, and are increasingly being structurally excluded from growth. So he says that this is causing a decline, a slowing of economic growth. So if you look back at that that productivity versus wages graph, it's roughly a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. that used to go to workers, that now goes to shareholders and executives. So you can just imagine that trillion dollars if it was still going to workers would have been a much, much bigger, we would have had a much bigger economy. Wages would have been much higher. So these are the trends. You know, a lot of people like to blame the, the demise of unions, but even Andrew Stern in his book, who was, he was the president of the SCIU, he said one of the reasons he left unions is because they couldn't nationalize and they also couldn't go global. So they structurally could not cope with globalization or automation. So I think it's really globalization and automation. But today we also see the transition to of work to part-time contracts, more gig economy work, which doesn't have benefits and generally is, is, is a far more competitive labor marketplace, um, actually occurring on in labor marketplaces where everyone's competing with each other. And then the final trend I see that's a big deal is is this winner-takes-all economies now where companies like Amazon are absorbing huge shares of economic activity. Like Amazon will have 10 times the impact Walmart had on, on Main Street retail. And um, uh, I've heard projections that 30% of shopping malls will close within five years because of Amazon and retail is the number one employer. So so these are the urgencies for basic income. And I feel that it's time that as a society, we acknowledged that these, these structural changes are happening and this makes left versus right views about welfare or laziness or, or all those things completely obsolete and completely besides the point. Like those views reflect a 1970s viewpoint when wages were rising with productivity and when families' real purchasing power was in fact higher than it is today. So I think we don't need to wait to see if AI takes out half of all jobs. We can already see the impact on, on the economy. And I was doing some research recently on the impact here in Ontario. And I was actually amazed that since 1997, uh, the number of people, the share of jobs, share of people in minimum wage jobs, not the number, but the, the share of, it, of them, has increased fivefold. And the number of people in low-income jobs has nearly doubled to 30% of all jobs, according to some, some reports I've seen. So imagine, and this same trend is playing out in the US, where you have the hollowing out of, of a lot of the second tier cities in the middle of the country, people primarily moving to San Francisco, New York, London, and Boston. Uh, sorry London, <laughs> uh, Boston. And so you can just extrapolate these numbers. What happens if, if the sh- share of jobs that are low income gr- grow to 60%? Or as Nick Hanauer, who I've followed a lot of his work, he's the guy who did the um, Beware Plutocrats, the Pitchforks are Coming, you know, he points out that the top 1% only had 5% of national income in 1980, now they have 22, and, and the bottom 50% is is where the lo- the loss was, their earnings. So imagine that if nothing gets done in 10 or 20 years, the top 1% could have 35% of national income per year, and that then you don't have capitalism anymore, you have a feudalist economy. So you know, you just just extrapolate the numbers, that's where we're going. In my opinion, a basic income is the most scalable solution to that. And the other arguments I have about why it's pro-business are fairly timeless, but they kind of like a segue off of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you raised a really interesting point, which is uh, oftentimes when we talk about automation, we the conversation is what will happen and whether it's 5, 10, 20 years with robots coming and taking our job. And and I think oftentimes people adopt a somewhat literal view of that, that either either a robot itself or a computer program will just come and do your job. And then that it still seems like more so now, but there's still limited imagination as far as, oh, could this actually happen? Um, and so your your point that you were making, which which I I think is an important one, is that we we don't need to look to the future that automation has been happening here. Um and that I, I also was struck by your noting about the low wage job increases and that because I feel like that's often some something that people will raise as a counterpoint that if automation is happening, why do people still have jobs? Why isn't productivity going up? And if people are being forced into these low wage jobs to have something that would really explain why that trend hadn't hadn't manifested in a way that they might have intuitively expected if, if you're talking about The robot coming and taking your specific job
2: yeah exactly so the way unemployment the way the the labor market changes with automation it's not that as you said it's not that a robot comes and takes your job and knocks on your door it's more like over the years less people are needed to do this to do work as demand grows so companies become more productive with less people so gdp is up population is higher but less people are actually needed to do the work so so here's a an example i think we're going to see playing out let's say that artificial intelligence gains replace a lot of work that doctors used to do and this is is 100% being discussed right now in the startups coming out of the valley that are working on these problems i'm, I'm sure your readers have heard that that ra- software that does cancer scans on x-rays is now more effective than panels of, of radiologists so what you might have is let's say metaphorically 10 doctors serving 1000 people but then 10 years later after new software gets adopted and new hardware gets adopted um, you still have those 10 doctors, but now maybe you, have, uh, maybe you have more like 50 technicians who are paid a quarter as much as a doctor just working with software and computers and carting them around to see their patients. So you've replaced what might have been a, a gain, you m- might have been a requirement to hire another, another 50 doctors as the population has grown, and you've replaced that 50 doctors with 1,000 personal support workers who just work with software, who get paid you know, something close to minimum wage or a bit higher. That's how it's happened, and that's and, and the hotel example is evidence of that, and all the manufacturing cases like that's that's how it happens, and that's what AI is going to do. So all the experts are saying that, like I don't think there'll be no jobs. I just think the jobs will be there'll be more jobs that are low paying, and no one's a lot of people won't want them, and the only way to make those jobs actually work is if you have a basic income so people can choose to do that work while not living on a precarious precariously and not living on a subsistence level. So I think basic income will make that work actually actually pay enough Like in combination with basic income. And uh, that's, that's the future because it's, it's already
1: happening. So you've talked about some of the urgent and dire reasons that, that we need to be changing up the system now. And I think you alluded to earlier that there is some perhaps more positive rationales that, that business might be interested in supporting basic income. Can, can you talk through your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm amazed no one talks about this. And, you know, as I run, I've been running a business for 12 years, and we have over 7,000 software developers a year come to my conferences in, in New York, San Francisco, London, and China, Brazil. We also have a news website for software engineers that has over a million readers a month. And um, so, you know, in, I, I'm very interested in the macroeconomic cases for these, so I just looked into it a bit, and there's some talking points that are just, I guess, just not there. So the first one is that it is an economic stimulus. Um, it, it is, I mean, businesses only hire in response to increasing consumer demand or purchasing power. So if we want to grow the economy, we have to make sure that enough people can participate in the economy and, and buy things so that, you know, new businesses and the vibrancy of, of new startups, all that can be maintained. So quite simply, there's been research shown that programs that put more money in the hands of those who have the least generate five times more return to the economy than corporate tax cuts. So the, the velocity of money in the U.S. has been drastically affected since 2008. I think it—I saw it Nick Kenhour uh, put up a slide that it, like, the average dollar was exchanged 17 times in a year before 2008, and now it's only exchanged five times in a year because wealth has been so concentrated in the hands of a few. So maybe it's time that we engage in a demand-side stimulus like a basic income that that directly brings people up to a livable level and and stimulates the economy. And there is real evidence now that this would work. So there's a program in Canada called the Canada Child Benefit. Uh, It's something that even some Republicans in the US were suggesting that we do something like that in the US, which is encouraging. So the Canada Child Benefit is a unconditional, no forms to sign cash transfer program for families. And I think it ranges from $100 a month all the way to $530 a month per child, per household, depending on their income level. So imagine that, that a, a, a family in poor circumstances with two children could be receiving over $1,000 a month, no strings attached uh, from the government, and which helps them make ends meet. So this program, not only has it brought, so it was launched in July of 2016, not only has it brought 300,000 children out of poverty, according to Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, but the, the governor of the Bank of Canada, Stephen Poulos, said on record that this program resulted in a 0.5% GDP growth in 2017 that's pretty amazing half a percent of GDP growth and as you know GDP measures measures the exchange of goods production of goods obviously if there's more goods being exchanged more jobs are created and I'd noticed personally when looking at unemployment graphs a five-year graph of unemployment in Canada the unemployment rate was pretty flat for three years and literally the month after those payments began you can you can start to see the, the the line starting to go down and now we've had two years of um of nonstop decrease in unemployment. Now that's happened in the US as well, so there might be something else going on, but it's unusual how that how those payments seem to correlate to dislodging a, a flat line in un, unemployment. So it is an economic stimulus. You know, and and as you've, I'm sure your leaders know, the Roosevelt Institute in the US did a did a projection that the US economy would grow by by 13 at least 13% Within a few years, if there was a basic income, adding two and a half trillion dollars to the annual economy, creating over four and a half million jobs. And it also would be a great stimulus for rural and small towns. Uh, big, big cities is where economic activity, taxable economic activity is concentrated. So you can imagine that if there was a, a national basic income, the, it would effectively be like the big cities investing in the small towns uh, because the basic income would be the same amount probably all over the country. And uh, that would make small towns more affordable, bring in fresh cash, resulted in a lot of investment. And we've seen that the rural town of Dauphin, uh, of Dauphin in Manitoba, in Canada, when they had a five-year trial in the '70s, we can see a lot of evidence, a lot of stories about people buying tractors and farming implements. Um, you know, just taking themselves one step up in their lives, and and you know, spending more in the economy. Um, in addition to social benefit outcomes like, he- like hospitalization visits went down eight and a half percent. So it's an economic stimulus. Another point is that it'll help us manage recessions. The biggest problem during a recession is consumer confidence. Well, what could stimulate? So in that regard, basic income is an automatic stabilizer. If people aren't afraid of what they're going to eat tomorrow, they're probably not going to curb their spending as much. So that's something that I never heard anyone talk about, but it seems like such common sense, especially when you're talking about how a basic income would meaningfully reduce fear and anxiety for at least half the country. The other half, they have more money. They won't have that much fear. But I have to say, even myself, you know, running a business, doing well financially, I worry that one day I could lose everything. So just knowing that that check's coming in every month is, 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 a, is like an antidepressant. And actually, Evelyn Forger, who, who did the um, analysis of the Dauphin Manitoba experiment, has this great article about how UBI would, would be massive for p- mental health. Because it functions as an antidepressant because people won't be stressed. And I know that from my own personal example because in my mid-20s, I took my life savings at the time. I, had, I made some money from some stock options in a startup I was in and I downpaid a rental property. And, and the income from that rental property massively reduced m- my sense of stress and anxiety. Like, I knew that no matter what, I'll never have to starve or worry about shelter. There'll be just enough money to get by even if it's, not, even if it's a small amount. And with that with that confidence, I quit a high paying job and started my business. And now I employ fifty people. And you know, so the basic income for me was very personal. And I want everyone to have that, that lack of stress, you know? You don't have to be a, a millionaire to, to to not to experience the absence of strain and stress. You just need 1000 thousand or $1, fifteen hundred dollars a month that you can rely on. And like that's all it might take. So imagine imagine a fearless society. Where no one has to worry about that. Where no one's voting for populists because we're promising them stuff because they're already feeling a sense of well-being. Like that's what we what's on the line here, and that's why I'm so excited about basic income. So I have a few more points, but you want me to go through them all or <laughs> Go ahead. Another point is it will unleash entrepreneurship. This is why the, the famed Y Combinator, the president Sam Altman, says that when he went through Y Combinator, it was like getting a basic income. He got twelve thousand dollars a year. Interesting number there which they used, used to eat and, and live. Uh, so imagine, I think basic income will unleash entrepreneurship. Now it's not gonna create entrepreneurs. I think entrepreneurship and that kind of risk-taking is sort of an innate quality, but imagine all the potential entrepreneurs that are held back by life circumstances, afraid to take a risk, you know, just trying to make ends meet for their families, who could then take risks and, and, and do this. So it's really about helping people have time and, and mind share to create things. So imagine if people were always creating And that's something we can get from this. And for those who are not entrepreneurs, but who want to better themselves, it would reduce the risk of retraining and relocating. So, you know, we need a more educated workforce. Well, first, let's help people have the mindshare to think about the future and be able to take time to go and retrain. And I'd rather people retrain themselves or, you know, go on Khan Academy or or Udemy than some government retraining program where who knows what, what they'll come up with. So let's decentralize. Let's trust the free market. So that people can go and retrain themselves or be able to take a risk by relocating to where the jobs are. Because, I mean, I, I'd imagine myself if, if I was in poor circumstances and I had to go across the country to find work, I might hesitate if I didn't know what I would eat the week I got there. So, you know, basic income will, will really help kind of lubricate the system so people can be more mobile. And the final point is that a basic income could enable an entirely new economy to emerge. I call it the volunteering economy. So what that means is let's say someone wants to voluntarily work for you for five dollars an hour because they, they believe in what you're doing or your cause, maybe it's not even a business, maybe it's some sort of community service, or maybe it is a business and they want to work for you and, and maybe get a profit share or just help. Well, none of that is, is feasible right now. so imagine if we had a, an, imagine the economies, the number of, of businesses of organizations of community groups that would exist if there was a basic income in place so that people could voluntarily Choose to work, and even if the, if the amount they're being paid isn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily be a living wage by, by traditional measures, but imagine it if they're choosing to do it, then they're not under any coercion. And this is why, from a business perspective, basic income is better than minimum wage increases, and it's also better than the EITC or similar programs that exist in the UK or or and in Canada, uh, because those programs don't compensate for caregiving or or. Not unpaid work like community service or entrepreneurship. So, to me, basic income is just a much better approach to, to solve those problems.
1: Yeah, for me, the thing that really resonates is what, what could be unlocked or around entrepreneurship, that if you look at who's currently able to start a business, the vast majority of people have some sort of substantial means already, they're either personal wealth or family connections, but, but they're in a position where they can afford to take the risk. Because if if you're not sure if you can put food on the table, how on earth are you going to actually go potentially months or even years without actually getting a profit from from your new business idea? So seeing how many how many potential entrepreneurs out there could could be unleashed with with this, I would say that is definitely something um, both honestly from a business and an equity perspective that uh, that I feel like is is very compelling. So I, I'm curious, you you've been talking, you've been doing this advocacy work for a while now, and talking to people in the business space. How are they reacting to this? Are, are, is it resonating with folks? Are, are there certain folks that seem to get it and others who don't? Yeah, what what, what is the reaction then?
2: I find it's mostly positive. Uh, you know, a lot of people, particularly for people who, who, were, who came from humble backgrounds, um, you know, they, they know how hard it was, and they can imagine how much better they would have been. If they would have had a basic income from you know back from day one, so you know typically I would say it's probably 70% positive, uh, but people have questions like how do you pay for it and such. Um, the ones that were more negative usually are responding from ideology and and concerns about about disincentivizing work, and usually those who are open-minded, if we talk about it enough, then they they usually see that it, it doesn't disincentivize work. Um, so although most of the people that I speak to are are more the i guess younger generation of business owners people under under 45 i haven't spoken to any any fortune 500 people that have more of a old industrial mindset so uh yeah but mostly positive i'm i'm actually quite pleased
1: has there been any big surprises for you in in your advocacy here reactions people have had or who yeah i guess the types of folks that have wanted to get most engaged
2: Right now, what I'm most surprised by and disappointed by is the decision of the, of, the, of the Doug Ford government in Ontario to cancel the Ontario trial. And to me, it seems like a political move. Um, my, my personal theory is that, I mean, they canceled it before any data was even gathered. So they had no reason to cancel it. Um, and I think that it was actually a political move because probably the trial would have generated a lot of positive press over the next two years until it ended. And all those good use stories might have been used against the party at the next election. Should they um, should they choose to, to not run or not even talk about basic income? So it's it's kind of unfortunate that you know in Canada we have the progressive conservative party at the provincial level, which is supposed to be progressive, and it it used to be progressive, and it's quite exciting that even in Canada even conservative parties are progressive, but unfortunately that seems to be changing, and um. Which is disappointing because I think basic income actually is a progressive conservative idea. I mean, it almost passed in the U.S. under Nixon, passed in the House. So there was a time when when conservatives actually cared about solving poverty and had no issue with taxation, and now that seems to have changed. So I think that's actually what happened, and I'm very surprised. So I'm trying to do whatever I can, like organize other CEOs together, sign a letter to the Ford government uh, to urge them not to do this. But I think I guess the big surprise I'm seeing is that. So I have a a strange um, hobby. I like debating people on Facebook about basic income, especially conservatively debating people, because I truly believe that this is a conservative idea. And um, what I find is that people just don't know those trends that I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. They don't know what impact globalization and automation has had on on their jobs. I believe that people are are good, and if they understood that, that working people actually don't have access to enough good-paying jobs anymore, that they changed their minds, but they don't know that. So most, most, people, most people on the right who are against basic income on, on laziness or entitlement reasons, I think they just don't know, literally don't know that the labor market is not what it was in 1970 when, um, when you know, most people can get a pretty decent job fairly easily and paying really well. Now it's just not the case.
1: You brought up a good point there, which is this interesting intersection of, of appeal that basic income may have around particularly if you're looking at it from a business perspective, that, that you could potentially get some some more conservative folks to, to be behind it. Uh, while at the same time, you have folks on the left who, who see this as a potentially transformative idea in, in how it might include people in the economy. So something I've encountered in, in, in our work at Universal Income Project is that while you can make both those arguments, when you try to bring folks together, it doesn't always go terribly smoothly, that there, there is a lot of distrust. And I would say particularly in this moment in the US, maybe it's less so up in Canada. But w- when you have people coming in for, for different reasons, different value-based or ideological reasons, that it, it can be a challenge to, to form that larger coalition. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if that's something you, you've thought about. Is it something you've encountered in your work so far?
2: Yeah, it's definitely something I see. I haven't encountered it because I haven't done any actual political stuff yet. Uh, a lot of my work has been grassroots, and in my spare time, so I'm still running running my business. But uh, uh, but uh, but on that note, what I'm most excited about now is Andrew Yang's campaign in the U.S. to run for president because he, I think, the one issue that could actually cut through left versus right is automation, and the fact that um, automation is is replacing jobs, and if people get educated on the fact that automation has already been replacing jobs and the stuff we already talked about then the urgency is there and you know when the urgency is there we can cut through all those all those discussions so that's that's really important so that's why also for myself for discussions i have i tend to start with these trends that are that are changing the economy and and frankly unfortunately use a bit of fear because uh, you know <laughs> people respond well to fear although personally i'm much more excited about basic income for for the kind of society we'll have after we have it. But um, but right now, we, we need to defend the middle class and we need to defend our way of life. And I, I, I know of no better solution than, than basic income.
1: Yeah, I would say personally I have some, some mixed feelings around that just because there is... I mean, you, you do have that extreme, the, the fear side and the potentially massively aspirational side. And can those actually work well together or, or do you put people into different camps? But, I mean, it certainly seems like if we can get more people to be recognizing the need for change then then that uh, does open up new doors
2: yeah and that's why i like what Yang is doing very much I, i'm doing whatever i can to help him and um i actually really like also his proposal that this be taxed through a new value-added tax because so this, in europe the value-added tax is 20 percent. in canada it's five percent federally it's called the gst and in the us there isn't one and what I like about the value-added tax is that it doesn't touch income tax. So no one has those knee-jerk reactions when they imagine losing more of their income. A value-added tax also also promotes conservation. So if you can do more with less in your business, you'll pay less value-added tax. That's how the tax works. Uh, as opposed to income tax, or which actually penalizes it if you're very efficient, because then you'll make more income in your business and pay more income tax. Another thing is that so all the experts are saying, all the futurists like Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil, they're all saying that productivity will increase exponentially with so many new technologies coming and prices will get very, very cheap. So to me, a value-added tax harnesses productivity. It, it tracks to productivity much better than income does. So if a value-added tax is in place, then those exponential productivity gains will be able to contribute to society and contribute to the purchasing power and the livelihoods of, of most of society, which is why I really like that Andrew Yang calls it a dividend. Like, why why can't capitalism pay a dividend? You know what's the point if it can't at least pay a dividend to keep people solvent at some basic level and maintain, you know, maintain sustainability. You know, maintain renewability. We use that word renewables in the context of the environment, but the, the economy is a system as well. It's a it's a complex adaptive system according to to New Economists, and it's not renewable right now because it's it's trending towards Feudalism now. So, if we had a, a freedom dividend, as Andrew Yang calls it, paid for by productivity, to me it seems like a very logical way to harness te- techno- exponential technological growth to make capitalism renewable and sustainable.
1: So, taking the the winner take all direction we're moving in, and actually creating a collective component to success, basically.
2: Yeah, harnessing it, harnessing it. So, if if Amazon's going to be the sole shopping place for the whole country, well, then they should pay based on uh, value added tax. Because, you know, there's another trend I didn't mention is that these days, some of these large companies, the financial incentives are no longer profit, their share growth, sorry, their valuation growth in their shares. So the, the whole venture the venture capital movement now is uh, much more interested in growth and share value than interested in profit. So, so our current taxation system that our civilization is based on is based on primarily profit, profit taxing. Uh, because capital gains is, is laughably low, as even Warren Buffett says, it needs to be increased to a minimum 30%. So when these companies are, are, are becoming the, the, glo- the winners, like eating up the whole market, and this winner takes all manner like Amazon, and they're not
0: actually making a profit, then, then the system's broken. So a value-to-tax would, would correct for that. That was Floyd Marinescu, founder and CEO of C4 Media on the Basic Income Podcast.
1: So Floyd definitely had a different set of arguments than than you typically hear when when talking about basic income. I feel like the urgent ones that that he described those tend to align more closely with the conversations that often come up, particularly around the forward-looking risk of automation that, that we think may be coming down the road, and also how that's affected us today. But as far as the more specific economic ones, I mean, we've talked about that a little bit, but it's certainly, even some of the same analyses, when you're thinking about how that, what impact that has, from the viewpoint of a business leader, it it, it kind of takes on a new form, it seems like.
0: Yeah, and I feel like this is an underplayed argument in the basic income space, and i certainly include myself in that as well, just because this is a direct way that people would be helped and the economy would be helped. And and it's something that people respond to very directly. And when you make a moral case, sometimes that doesn't connect with people in the same way uh, as opposed to something that would just make their lives better on a daily, weekly basis.
1: I think that's true. And I do think and and we've certainly talked a lot about this in the past, that when people talk about basic income as a bipartisan issue, I I think Warning lights go off for me because I think if they're saying this is left right, and you have some folks who want to lift everyone up and other folks who want to, really their main goal is cutting the social safety net. I think that even though both may quote support quote unquote universal basic income, pretty we're different gonna, We're going to end up with yeah some some very clear misalignment once once we get to a certain stage in the process. But if you're talking about forward-looking business leaders who are supporting a policy that ensures everyone participates in the economy, I don't know, maybe there actually is an unusual coalition that could come out of that with with folks on the left and and those people advocating for actually the same policy.
0: Yeah, and I think the idea that there are people with great business ideas and who have things to contribute, but they need to make their rent in the next two weeks or or else they're screwed, Uh, I think that that can connect to a lot of people. Uh, I also, on a different note, liked how much emphasis he put on globalization because we've kind of baked that in and are thinking about the economy. It's, it's something that people don't talk about too much, but it's a major reason why people are as economically insecure as they are, at least in the United States right now. And and even if you know automation does not turn out to be as big a factor as people think it will be, um, we already have this major factor of globalization, which could get even stronger as more and more of the world comes online and we're able to do more and more remotely. And
1: I mean, I think if you zoom out far enough, one could argue that globalization is actually a specific manifestation of automation. We wouldn't have globalization without the technology to actually be managing those communications, those operations around the world. And so that while it's not the kind of micro automation of of something coming and disrupting your particular job, it is another instance of, of technology disrupting the traditional model of work. And that it's it's clearly something that has been happening for decades. Um, one other thing I'll add is I, I do think that get, getting back to who who is in this space, who's actually working on policy, um, something that is is key that has has struck me at multiple points in, in my work on basic income is still making sure that the people actually designing the policy are the ones directly affected. And so I think that that is, it is, I think that there is fantastic potential for business playing a leading role in pushing forward policy, but at the same time, making sure that what the actual policy is, is being figured out by those who are in poverty, by those who are dealing with the racial injustice of our current system, and so that what what we end up with is something that is going to lift those people and and not unintentionally leave folks out as happened oftentimes in the past
0: all right that'll do it for this episode of the basic income podcast thank you to our producer eric davidson please subscribe on apple podcasts or the service of your choice and we'll see you next week